All right. Well, we will pick up where we left off last week, talking about dispensations. <clears throat> Just a little bit of review while you're getting your notes out. Um, we're in the section on hermeneutics dealing with principles that you need, need to keep in mind. We talked about the principle of the priority of the original languages, since the original documents were inspired, copies and translations were not. If you want to get the point, you've got to go back to the original. <clears throat> we talked about the accommodation of revelation, that God accommodates revelation to our level of understanding. Uh, so we have to be aware of the different kinds of literature and how to approach that. So we started this third one last time, uh, progressive revelation, the idea that God has uh, revealed himself a little bit at a time over the centuries and eons. He didn't dump everything about himself on Adam and Eve. <laughs> so we know more about God than they did because we've had that progressive revelation. <clears throat> And we looked at some of these verses last time to illustration to show illustrations of uh, that progress. Uh, so the importance of understanding progressive revelation is that if you're going to interpret a text, you have to understand the context. How much did the writer and the readers he was writing to understand about God? Uh, because you can't apply what we know about God to something that was written in the Old Testament because they didn't know that yet. And so you can't work backwards. Right? It, it's a big problem. People do that all the time. So you need to know the dispensational placement. That puts it back in the historical perspective. And we talked about dispensationalism and covenant theology last time. We're not quite finished with that uh, contrast. But we did start talking about dispensations, and if you have that handout that I gave you last time, you can... I do have a few copies left. <clears throat> I have So um, we talked a little bit about uh, dispensationalism. It's the idea that uh, Scripture is divided into different historical eras or periods of time, and God deals with people in different ways during those different time periods. He administers or manages his kingdom on earth in different ways during different periods of time. It's not... Uh, dispensations are not specifically outlined in Scripture. The Bible never talks about dispensations. But as you analyze Scripture, you can see that things naturally fall into periods of time. Okay, so it's kind of an analytical, uh, backward-looking <laughs> Scripture. Okay, um, The people who believe in covenant theology have a problem with that, and we'll talk more about 
that contrast as we go along. We discussed a little bit last week. So this list gives nine dispensations. As I mentioned last time, different scholars will have different numbers and they'll also give them different names. You have to expect that when you're studying scripture because they're looking at things from their own point of view for their own purposes. So you're going to have to expect to find discrepancies. Uh, And we pointed out in the introduction at the top there, it talks about three dispensations. And then there's a list of nine. (laughs) That's quite a bit of difference. I think the three are categories, and you could probably fit these nine into those three. So they get the job done, no matter what the list says. So we'll go through these dispensations and talk a little bit about them. Uh, First of all, you have the dispensation of innocence, which is from the creation of man to the fall of man, first three chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve were innocent, and God dealt with them on the level of their innocence. They had a face-to-face relationship with God. We don't have that. Uh, After Adam and Eve sinned, nobody could have that, (laughs) because sin was a separation. And in Exodus 32, I think it is, Moses is up there on the mountain and he asks God, show me your glory. And God says, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. He says, nobody can see my face and live. (laughs) Because the sin separates us so much from God that you stand in the presence of a holy God in your sinful condition and you'd evaporate. (laughs) So... Uh, it doesn't work. But because of their innocence, they didn't have that problem. They didn't have sin as a, as a barrier between them and God. So he dealt with them on the basis of their innocence. Terry? Yeah. So what that means is in the future, that will be restored. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to talk track and How old were Adam and Eve when Cain killed Able. No, older Adam and Eve they were kicked out of the garden. I wonder how many years they had walked with God. Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Doesn't say. We don't know. There's no idea. Yeah. Going back to Mike's question, how how can we? How can we be restored to an age of innocence when we know what sin is? Well, because God has taken the sin away. Yeah, but it, that's different than, um, than being innocent. A, a child, a little child, doesn't know what sin is. Well, I, well. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a, a child may not be able to define sin, <laughs> but they can certainly practice it. <laughs> yeah, when we get to the eternal state, you know, all of that is going to be restored. Uh, the sin will not be an issue anymore. Um, that's the best answer I've got. <laughs> okay. It's not going to be sin in heaven. Right. Right. So, no, I know there won't be sin, but. But we still know that we've been redeemed from God. Yes. And we will be made suitable for God's presence. Yeah. That's different. Well, I think that's the whole point. 
Adam and Eve were suitable for God's presence because they had no sin. When we get to heaven and the sin issue is done away with, we will be suitable for God's presence. So the second dispensation then is the dispensation of conscience from the fall to the flood. Adam and Eve were tempted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan tempted Eve and said, well, God doesn't want you to eat of that because he knows that as soon as you do, you'll be just as smart as he is. (laughs) And he's trying to hold you back. You will know the difference, he says, between good and evil. Now, really, I think probably that has more the idea that they would be able to determine what is good and what is evil. Not just that they would be able to say, oh, this is good and this is evil. But only God sets the rules. He's the one who defines good and evil. So Satan was saying, you're going to be just like God. You can set your own rules, (laughs) which is man's problem forever, you know. But I think the other applies. I think Adam and Eve learned the difference between good and evil when they sinned, but they learned it from the viewpoint of evil. And they're thinking, (laughs) what were we thinking? (laughs) I think if they had not fallen, if they they still would have known the difference between good and evil. They just would have known it from a position of good instead of evil. So during this period of time, God dealt with people on how they followed their conscience. You know, let your conscience be your guide, (laughs) Jimmy Cricket. Uh, We have an illustration of that in the first four chapters of Romans. Paul is trying to show that the Jews and Gentiles both are in the same position in reference to God. The Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles because they have the law. They have the covenant relationship. In fact, Paul says that in those chapters in Romans. He says, yeah, you've got the law, you've got the covenant relationship, but you're not obeying it. (laughs) Having the law does you absolutely no good if you don't do the law. And he says the Gentiles who don't know anything about the law are actually fulfilling the law through their conscience. They're doing the things that the law requires because they know that's the right thing to do. And because they are actually doing the law, even though they don't have it, they're better off than you are. (laughs) They're closer to God than you are because they're actually doing the law. You have it, and you're not obeying it. So you're worse off. So conscience is the way God dealt with people. And the third dispensation is dispensation of civil government from the flood to Babel. We don't have a lot said in those chapters about government. It's mostly implication. When Noah and his family left the ark and God said, multiply and fill the earth, starting all over again, (laughs) after he got it all cleaned up, their descendants didn't do that. They kept producing children, but they stayed there. Now, exactly where they were, you know, who knows? I, I imagine somewhere in the vicinity of where the ark landed. But in Genesis 11, you know, God says it's not good that they stick together because if you have just that one world, using the word world to mean all of humanity, (laughs) 
if you have that one world government, he says, then they can pass any laws they want, <laughs> even laws that are self-destructive. So they can destroy themselves, you know, if they stick together. So we're going to have to spread them out. And, you know, they wanted to make a name for themselves, like Adam and Eve. They wanted to call the shots. You know, we want to be in charge. The only thing that is preventing man from destroying himself now is nationalism. Mm -hmm. It's checks and balances. It's to prevent that very thing from all people getting together and saying, yeah, let's do this. And God is saying, no, <laughs> if you do that, you're dead. <laughs> so, yeah, the one world government has been talked about a long time. I, I got a book at the IVC library years and years, decades ago. They were getting rid of old books. It's just a small book. It's called They Must Be Governed. It's all about a one-world government. And it was written in the 20s. In, in 72, 1972, Harry Reasoner. Remember Harry Reasoner? Who? Harry Reasoner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had a comment about that, one-world government. He said, and it, you know, his commentary was like five minutes long or whatever. I transcribed it, have it in my files. But to summarize, he said, the only reason we don't have a one-world government yet is because people aren't afraid enough. <laughs> he says, as soon as people get afraid enough, they will call for a one-world government, for protection. And you can see in our world situation today why people would say that. I mean, we have in America a problem with illegal immigration, but we're not the only country around the world. A lot of countries around the world have that same problem. And I'm sure somebody has already thought the idea, although I haven't heard it expressed, if we didn't have any borders, if we were all one thing, we wouldn't have any illegal immigration because <laughs> they'd all be part of the system already. Right. So that's the problem with, with a, a one world government. You, know, you can pass laws, and we've done it in America, you can make something that's evil legal. <laughs> Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. You know, we've passed laws that are immoral, that are destructive. And if it's if there's one world government, then that that law is going to apply to everybody and pretty soon you don't have anybody anymore. Well, we're something similar to what you're talking about, but it's kind of inside out. Um, the district attorneys are refusing to prosecute certain uh, mm -hmm. minor crimes. Why have it on the books? If exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's getting to be a huge problem in the cities. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, this is half a step off the point, but related um, <clears throat> from the other side of the issue. This happened years and years ago down in South Mississippi or Louisiana, one of those, a town in one of those states. <clears throat> they decided to take a particular law off the books because nobody liked it anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking, laws are not about what you like. You know? They're there for, you know, for the benefit of society. You know? That's the attitude. You know, we can manipulate laws however we want for our own purposes. It doesn't work. 
It reminds me of the, the third movie in the Star Wars series, if you're familiar with that. Um, the, the guy who's a senator has always been represented as a good guy, you know, but really he's a bad guy that's kind of infiltrating things. And he is, he's conducting, he's the, the chancellor of the Senate, and the Senate is made up of representatives of beings from all over the galaxy. And he starts saying that the Jedi, who are the, the law keepers, you know, they're the, for peace and justice and everything in the, in the galaxy, he says they're going bad and they want to destroy everything and get rid of your freedoms. He's got the people all worked up, so he says, therefore, I'm going to do away with the Republic and establish the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. <laughs> and everybody cheers, and one of the characters says, so this is how liberty dies, to thunderous applause. <laughs> because he's doing that exact thing. You know, he's taking away their freedom, and he's going to be the dictator. But he's saying it's for their good. How often have we heard that in our society? We don't know what's good for us. I mean, we're just keeping running for president because they don't want to get us back to it. Right. Exactly. So God still, uh, even though civil government was not the best option, God still worked with people through civil government, the system of laws and stuff like that. So after the people were dispersed because they wouldn't do it themselves. God confused the languages. Number four, we get to the dispensation of promise or the patriarchal rule from Babel to Mount Sinai. This deals with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob. Now notice how we switched. One, two, and three all deal with mankind as a whole. Suddenly with four, we're focusing on one family group. <laughs> But it's a dispensation where now God is working his kingdom on earth through this one family group, the promise to Abraham. That, uh, and we'll get into his promises when we talk about the covenants. <clears throat> so from Abraham to Moses, Mount Sinai, uh, God dealt with people through the promise to Abraham. And all of the, you know, he would make Abraham the father of a huge nation and the people would have the land and all those other things. So now we're dealing with people in the family group. What happened to the rest of humanity? Well, <laughs> good question. <laughs> God is still dealing with those other people, but he's dealing with them through Abraham's family group. And when we get to the covenants, we'll see how that works. Then the fifth dimension, I always want to say the fifth dimension. <laughs> it's good music, but <laughs> it's the fifth dispensation. <laughs> uh, we have the Mosaic Law. So after Moses, now God is dealing with people on the basis of law, the sacrificial system and all of that stuff. <clears throat> Um, and as we said before, this all, this all relates to progressive revelation, which the, with the beginning of each of these new dispensations, we learn something new about God in the way he operates with people. So with, with the promise, we talked about this last time, with the promise to Abraham, we learn that God is faithful, 
he takes care of his people, he provides, protects, all of that stuff. And with the law, we learn his moral character. We have the Ten Commandments. You know, you can do this, but you can't do this. So he's refining things. We're seeing more of his character the further we go in Revelation. <clears throat> and this is, it says, from Mount Sinai to the upper room. I would want to extend that to Acts chapter 2. <laughs> because Acts chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit... Uh, comes and the church really starts. So up until you have the new covenant, the new covenant was inaugurated through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but it didn't take effect until Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came. So the law still applied. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Jews throughout the Gospels, he was it was still old covenant. He was trying to help them to realize that their understanding of the covenant they had with God was not right. I mean, they had things confused, and a lot of it had to do with the Pharisees who were forcing their superficial obedience to the law on the people, saying, all you have to do is be sure you cross the T's and dot the I's, and you'll be okay with God. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> he says, you've heard it said, you know, you shall not murder, but I say, if you even hate somebody, <laughs> you've done the job. Okay, so I kind of summarize that in the motto, you know, when it comes to sin, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> so the law was more than just the words on the page. So that's what Jesus was trying to get them to see. Their relationship with God was a vital or a living one, not just a superficial obedience to a set of rules. Uh, then number six, the dispensation of the bride of the Lamb. This is the church age or the dispensation of grace. Yeah. So, yeah, they, as I said, they had different names for these things. <laughs> right, yeah. Because through the new covenant, we see, again, progressive revelation, we see that God's grace extends not just to Israel, but to all people. Okay. And he extends grace... Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 you know you by grace you have been saved you know it's no longer obedience to the law which was an act of faith on the part of the ancient Hebrews because God said to do that and so in faith they did that but that's no longer the basis of acceptance with God as the book of Hebrews explains now you have access to God because Christ made the final sacrifice so the old sacrifices don't count <clears throat> it's like a contract if you hire a contractor to do some work around your house or your yard the contract stipulates what he's going to do and how much it's going to cost when he finishes the work and you pay him he stamps it paid and it's over <laughs> that contract doesn't apply anymore that's protection for both the contractor and the client because of the it protects the client because it, the contractor can't come back and say, oh, you still owe me some money for the... No, look, it says paid. <laughs> it's over. And the client can't go back to the contractor and say, you still have some work to do here. No, the contract has been fulfilled. It's, it doesn't apply anymore. Well, that's the old covenant. It's been fulfilled in the new covenant. So the old covenant doesn't apply anymore. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, if you remember back to our study of Hebrews. 
So we're in the, the age of grace now, the church age. Um, and this says it's from the upper room, or Acts chapter 2 really, to the rapture. Uh, dispensationalism says that there, there will be a rapture, the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation, and that at the end of the tribulation, Christ will return to set up the millennial kingdom. Covenant theology doesn't believe in a rapture or the tribulation or the millennium. <laughs> don't believe in a lot of things. <laughs> uh, we'll talk more about that when we get there. Anyway, <clears throat> assuming that dispensationalism, dispensationalism is correct and there will be a rapture before the, trans, before the, the tribulation, um, that the dispensation of grace goes up to the rapture. And that leads into the, the seventh dispensation, which is the dispensation of judgment or wrath. This is a tribulation. Tribulation has two bad things going on. One, it's, it's uh, persecution of Israel. Israel still is in a state of disobedience to God. But as Paul says in Romans 8, 9, and 10, 9, 10, 11, excuse me, God isn't finished with Israel. He's going to bring them back. Okay. But the, the tribulation, part of the tribulation is the purification of Israel. The Antichrist is going to persecute Israel. The other part is an exercise of judgment on the people who rebel against God. John calls them those who dwell on the earth. The word dwell is that word remain, some translations say abide, but it's the same word. It means to be firmly established, permanently established. These are the people who have rebelled against God, and even though God brings judgment, all of those judgments that come on during the tribulation, they don't repent. They shake their fists at God. They understand this is judgment. But instead of saying, okay, I blew it, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> they get mad at God. Okay. So that's an exercise of God's wrath against unbelievers. Now, Terry, during this time, um, I, we see in Revelation um, that um, John says that there are 144,000 Jewish young men who go out and evangelize the world. Now, um, I've always taken that to be literally true. Mm -hmm. is, is that your understanding? Yes. So uh, there is a kind of a revival among the Jews. Of course, God always has a remnant, right. even in this era. Right. Yeah, I think it says, is it chapter 12? or I think chapter 7 is where it talks about the 144,000. It might be later in that same chapter. It talks about a great multitude of people. And the, the angel asked John, who are these people? And John said, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> and he says, these are the people who came out of the tribulation. They were the ones who were saved during the tribulation. Now, are they Jews or Gentiles? Or I would say anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it, it just says from every nation. Yeah, every tribe and every nation. 12,000 uh, Right. They're all Jews. Yeah. Well, Excuse me. They're not all Jews. They're all Israelites. <laughs> Jews come from Judah. <laughs> That's only one tribe. <laughs> all Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. <laughs> okay. 
So 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, so they're all Israelites and they evangelize the world. Of course, there are different lists of uh, the 12 tribes, too. Uh, Do you count uh, Dan? Do you count uh, Abraham and Manasseh or Joseph? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> God will figure that out. You know, in, the, in Revelation, they, they name the tribes yeah. and they don't count Dan. Yeah. Yeah, but Dan is named in the um, in the book of Ezekiel, I believe. Yeah. Uh, when they divide up the land, Dan yeah. is given an inheritance. Yes. So up north, yeah. I don't know why. I, I haven't found a, a clear explanation of any of that. I found and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation, that the Jewish mind is not really concerned about details like that. <laughs> it's not a big deal. I think God sometimes throws <laughs> a curve just to keep it Seriously, I, have, I think so. That may be. Terry, I, I have some uh, Jewish friends, and we'll go out to dinner, and if all of them always end up talking about the Bible, you know, and... Uh, I, I said something to to them about, you know, the just shall live by faith. And I said, Paul repeats it three times in the New Testament and he brings it out of Habakkuk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She looked at me and she says, what's Habakkuk? <laughs> and I said, well, it's a book in the Old Testament. Oh, we don't care about the Old Testament. We All we care about is the Torah. Yeah, just the first five books. Yeah, yeah that's it. And she yeah. said, we, 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 don't, we don't care about the rest of the Bible. Yeah. But that, that sure gets rid of, you know, Isaiah. For yeah. <laughs> sure. It's a convenient one. Yeah. Less to worry about. But I think I mentioned this before last year, about just about a year ago. I attended a conference in Tucson, my brother's church. He and a bunch of people from his church went on a um, tour of Israel. And they invited, the pastor of the church invited the guide that they had in Israel, who was a Jew, and he's ex-military, Israeli military. And he guided them around Israel, and so the pastor asked him if he would be willing to come here and give a presentation for, you know, open it up to the public. So I attended that, and somebody, in the question and answer period, somebody asked him about that. You know, what, what, what? How do you respond to God when, you know, he says this, that, and the other thing? He said, well, according to the Old Testament, and of course, he's just Old Testament. Now, he would believe in the whole Old Testament, not just the Torah. But he said, according to the Old Testament, that the idea is, if God doesn't address an issue, then don't worry about it. (laughs) You obey what God has revealed. If he hasn't revealed it, it's not important. You don't need to worry about it. Okay, in, in a way that makes sense. But you know, once you get into the new covenant, as we're doing here with progressive revelation, there's a lot more that he has revealed, <laughs> and people still are accountable for that. But that's kind of the attitude, you know. If if God didn't mention it, don't worry about it. Well, I looked this up here uh, in Genesis chapter 15, verse six talking about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Mm-hmm. Did Abraham know about Jesus? No. Well, he doesn't see in the future, see a time when some 
miraculous thing will happen. I don't think so. Some people say that. Okay. But the only thing God revealed to Abraham is that the world would be blessed through Abraham and through his seed. It doesn't say how. <laughs> okay, so Abraham knew that a blessing was coming, but the form that that would take, he had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But Abraham knew that his son Isaac had, uh, was a miraculous sign. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you can't live through through that and not think that. <laughs> but it's the same with with like the people who built the the tabernacle. God gave them instructions. They didn't understand all the symbolism. God just said, use these materials, put it together in this way, and they said, okay. They didn't understand what we do. We look back and we can see, oh, they made this out of acacia wood. Acacia wood doesn't rot. <laughs> it's, it's impervious to insects and all of that. It's a symbol of God's eternality. And it's overlaid with gold, which is a symbol of his glory. And some of that gold, like in the altar where they did the sacrifices, was beaten. You know, they put the gold on there and beat it into shape. The beating is a symbol of judgment, and that's what the altar was all about. We can see that looking back because of what we know about God now. They didn't see that. You know, that's why it's so bad that Moses struck the rock once. Mm-hmm. Jesus only struck once. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, God told him, you blew the image. Yeah. <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> but they were not aware of that. Some people say, yeah, some people say that the ancient Israelites, when they were doing the sacrifices and stuff, were looking forward toward the Messiah. No, they weren't. <laughs> they were just doing what God told them to do. They had no idea about this, the Messiah. God never told that to them. He never revealed that. That came later. But they were trusting in their obedience. <clears throat> exactly. To give them the forgiveness for their sins. Exactly. Exactly. It's even though it's you know, much of the old we've talked about this before, much of, of righteousness in the old testament is based on behavior. You know, throughout the Psalms, David is being persecuted by people. And he says to God, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm righteous. We wouldn't want to slap his face. You know, <laughs> Nobody's righteous before God. But what he means is, I've kept the law. You know, I've done my duty. You know, why am I being persecuted? You know? Same thing with Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which Right, it was just faith in what God had revealed. So again, the point is, when you're, when you're studying Scripture and you're looking at the Old Testament, you have to take it for what they knew about God then. You can't read into it what we know about God now, because they didn't know that. So where are we? Number eight, the dispensation of the rule of the land. This is the millennial kingdom, the dispensation of righteousness, it's called sometimes. Sometimes because it says that Christ will rule in righteousness with an iron hand. The people who survive the tribulation 
who are saved during the tribulation and survive the persecution will walk into the millennium and they will populate the millennium. And <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> <excuse> me. <clears throat> it doesn't say there that everybody is going to live for the whole thousand years, but it does say if somebody dies at a hundred, it'll be as though he's a child, <laughs> an infant. <laughs> okay. So the longevity is going to be restored as it was before the flood. Um, but at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released, then the, the people who were born during the millennium, who still have sin natures, they will have a chance to choose whether they want to follow God or not. And then you have that battle where Christ returns and just basically says to all his enemies, you're dead, <laughs> and they disappear. <laughs> And then he sets up the, the eternal state. Which is the last one, number nine, the dispensation of the new creation of the Lamb, the eternal state, from the great white throne judgment throughout all eternity. So God is going to be dealing with people there directly, person. Well, I suppose you could say face-to-face -face again if you read the description in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth. God is going to be right there. <clears throat> there is no sin during this, um, this final dispensation. That's all cast into. The last one, number nine? Yeah. Right, that's the eternal state, yeah. Sin is completely done away with. Right. So those are the, uh, the, it says, according to this list, the nine dispensations uh, in which God deals with people in different ways different times. <clears throat> uh, as we discussed last week, shortly or briefly, the, there's uh, dis discussion, if to use a polite word for it, <laughs> about the legitimacy of dispensationalism. Because it came along, came along so late, you know, it wasn't until the 1800s that uh, this idea of dispensationalism and a pre-tribulation rapture came along. <clears throat> so the people who hold the covenant theology will take what they call the historical view of the church. Uh, the church never knew anything about dispensations or rapture or anything like that. All they knew was covenants. Okay. Now I won't, I'm not going to go so far as to say that the early church fathers, like the first few centuries up like the through the 5th centuries, the 400s. <clears throat> I'm not going to say that they held to covenant theology as we know covenant theology today because I don't think that term existed back then. <laughs> you can't read back into history. But they certainly didn't have any concept of dispensationalism and all that that involves. Right. Hey, Terry, most Baptist churches that I know of are dispensational churches. Mm -hmm. What churches are more into the covenant theology? Reformed, pres reformed churches, Presbyterian, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That I have to look into that. Um, 
Well, that's Reformed. Calvinism, Cal, Calvin and, uh, and uh, who's the other guy? Can't think of the other theologian during the Reformation. Um, anyway, that, yeah, their basic uh, beliefs that are adopted. But see, baptism, baptism, the Baptist denomination, I don't even want to use that word denomination, the concept of the Baptist, but you can't say it without it. <laughs> the concept of Baptist predates the Reformation. Okay, so there were Baptist churches before Luther came along and on all the other reformers. You realize the Reformation lasted like a hundred and some years. Well, that's why it's probably safe to say that Baptists are not Protestants. No. No. Right. I think today people understand Baptists, the various Baptist denominations, to be part of Protestantism simply because they're not Catholic. <laughs> yeah. But uh, technically, historically, you know, they predate all of that. Yeah. Although I think they would agree with you know, the Reformation idea, which brings us back to your point. <laughs> Since they predate the Reformation, you know, I'm not sure what the Baptist denominations who call themselves Reformed, I'm not sure that they would follow the Reformation theology of people like, um, uh, who did I just talk, Kelvin, John Kelvin? Kelvin yeah. and, who's the other guy? Can't think of the other guy. Anyway, they came up with these new ideas. <clears throat> So, I, I don't know how you could combine the pre-Reformation Baptist theology with Reformation theology. You know, to, they're different things. Now, maybe they find a way to do that. <laughs> they call themselves Baptists? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the first one, they called themselves Anabaptists because they believed, in a sense, they were, they were Protestant because the Catholic Church believed in... Right. Infant, infant baptism, baptism. and Anabaptist means rebaptism. Yeah, the rebaptizers. Yeah, because you know if you were baptized as an infant, and and then you grew up and got saved, you needed to be baptized again well, because that wasn't legitimate. You're Protestants, huh? <laughs> so I'm saying they could be considered that based on that. Baptism isn't really baptism without baptism. Right. Okay, well, we got time to get started with the covenants, which is in the next, uh, the back of that sheet. Um, So it gives the little definition of covenants at the top. The word in Hebrew is berith, and diatheke in Greek. It's basically a promise or an agreement. So dispensationalism says that God dealt with people in different ways during different periods of time. The covenant say God, the covenant theology says God dealt with people through covenants, different covenants at different times. So the emphasis is on the covenant, not the time period. Okay. And as we've discussed before, if you look at the Bible, just take it for what it says, you can see both of those. God certainly dealt differently through different periods of time, but he also dealt differently through different covenants. I mean, both of those, it seems to me, are obvious. 
although the covenant theology people would say the dispensations aren't obvious. <laughs> but it seems to me they are. <clears throat> so they point out there that a covenant can be conditional or unconditional. Conditional means you have to do something. <laughs> you know, both parties have to do something. And if one person, one party falls apart in their obligations, then that nullifies the covenant. Other covenants are unconditional. One party makes the agreement that he is going to do something, and it doesn't depend on what the other person does. Is the covenant with Abraham? Exactly. Yeah, when he, when God made all those promises to Abraham, in one of those sessions with Abraham, he had Abraham get all those animals and cut them in half, you know, and, and then he walked. It says the, what was it, a, a, a lamp? Yeah, kind of like a, a torch or something. Went down between the, and he put Abraham to sleep. <laughs> so this was a pattern for covenants that they made back then. Uh, the two people would walk between, down this aisle, between the halves of these animals, reciting the conditions of the covenant. And when they finished, they would say a phrase that you see throughout the Bible without the context. They would say, may God do so to me and more also if I don't keep my part of the deal. In other words, may God do to me what we did to these animals <laughs> if I fail to uphold. It was a serious thing. You know, I, I, I always like this, this event in, in, the, in the Bible because people in, in our world today re, refer back to this, but they don't even know it. They say, hey, can we cut a deal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the phrase, to cut a covenant. Yeah. Yeah, that's the phrase. And it's because they cut the animals in half. The, the Hebrew word for covenant literally means something that's cut. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So when he made, when God made the, the covenant with Abraham, God himself walked down that aisle and committed himself to keep the covenant. Abraham had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so that was an unconditional covenant. So uh, we, we'll get into a couple of these. This list starts with one that I would put at the end. <laughs> because it's kind of a universal covenant. It says here, the covenant with all repenting sinners to save them through Christ. And it gives a couple of uh, references there. You could also throw in Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10 and verse 13. Verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's God's promise. You know, that's not conditional on anything we do. Whether or not you're saved is conditional <laughs> on your faith. But the fact that that's the way it works, you know, we have nothing to do with that. <clears throat> so it's unconditional, as it says there. There are no strings attached. But see, that's the result, really, of the new covenant. So that's why I would put it at the end, <laughs> if we're doing things chronologically. Okay. We went through the dispensations chronologically. We better do the covenants chronologically. And that, I've never really heard that as a as it's stated there, as a covenant, I can understand why they would call it that. Uh, it goes along, you know, it, it's, it's a tenet of the new covenant, really. So the second covenant there is a covenant with Adam, and this I've never heard of before either, uh, is more by implication than direct statement. Two aspects of the covenant, before the fall, 
the, the covenant was that Adam and Eve could remain in Eden as long as they obey. I don't, I've never read that <laughs> in the Bible. That's from covenant yeah. I think they call that covenant of works. Yeah. So, yeah, it's implied because he said, if you disobey, you're out of here. <laughs> so the implication is, if you obey, you can stay. So, and then after the fall, the, the, the covenant said that God would someday send a Savior, Genesis 3.15, which is the proto-evangelium, or however you want to say that, the first gospel, the first promise of a Savior, part of that covenant. I'm not sure that that's really a covenant with Adam and Eve, because it's simply something that God said he was going to do. It didn't really involve Adam and Eve. It involved their descendants because the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But it doesn't seem to me to be an agreement with either Adam or Eve. So I think they're playing loose with some of their definitions, (laughs) their uses of the word covenant. Uh, We can get one more in here. The covenant with Noah, two uh, parts of that covenant that the earth would not be destroyed by water again. We had the rainbow to indicate that. And that the seasons would continue until the end, seed time and harvest. As long as the earth lasts, the seasons would progress normally. And that covenant with Noah is unconditional. God is going to do this. It's up to him. It had nothing to do with Noah. So this is called the Noahic Covenant. <clears throat> and we're out of time. So we'll pick up with number four next time. Uh, any other observations or comments about any of that? Okay. Well, let's close in prayer.